Welcome to Malpractice Podcast. Hello, are you ready to get started? Yes, I am. Perfect. I'm Sydney. And I'm Jess. And this is Malpractice Podcast in the morning. morning. Malpractice in the morning. (laughs) I knew you were going to sing it and I was like, do it, do it, do it. I love Malpractice in the morning. Me too. Like it's much better. We love a morning record. I don't really know why. It just feels like we're much more present. Because the end of the day, I think we've talked about this before, but at the end of the day, you're weighed down. With the bullshit of the day. Yeah, you have a lot At the of... the start of the day, the day can become anything. It could be anything. Who knows? Look, I have a, I have a giant Diet Dr. Pepper. Your day can be a, great. Where did you get that? Michelle went and got it for me because it's the only thing I wanted today. A Diet Dr. Pepper? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you. Yeah. Have, have to do it. <laughs> have to do it. I have a... My giant cup of coffee here. Yeah, you have... You have a dairy full mm-hmm. cup of coffee. <laughs> I sure do. I just ascribe to the belief that if you don't put something in your coffee, then you don't love yourself. Oh, yeah. That's 100% a fact. Okay. Like cinnamon, a sprinkle of cinnamon, great, fine, you love yourself. Black coffee in the morning is like, this is purely utilitarian. I don't think a sprinkle of cinnamon is enough. It's not enough for me, but I respect it if that's what you got. I don't think I respect it. You don't? Oh, it's got to be something. I don't think so. Okay. Sprinkle of cinnamon, that is not something in your coffee. That's dust. Yeah, it's dust. But <laughs> I'm like, as long as you, like, fix your coffee up a little. Oh, I have I have to do the most. I have to froth it. Oh, I am also a frother. You know Syrups. that. Syrups. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're the reason I have my frother now. I, I was like, a frother? If you, as a listener, have not started frothing... The milk that goes in your coffee or or dairy-free product that goes in your coffee, whatever you put in your coffee, yeah, start frothing it. I swear to God, it'll make your life better. <laughs> it's so much better. Every morning you have like a little cappuccino instead of just a regular-ass coffee. Yep. Change the game. It could change your day. It could, yeah. There's a lot of potential going into a day where you start it with a cappuccino. Yeah. So now we have to stop everything. Yes. Because it has just come out in the last couple of days that Elizabeth Holmes tried to flee the country last year. (laughs) Okay. So Joe Kinkopf and a couple of other people tagged us in like an article on Twitter. So special shout out to Joe. Shout out to you, Joe. Right. If you've listened to the show for a while... Uh, you probably know that we've done several episodes on Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Well, apparently... We're obsessed. We, yeah, we're obsessed. We're obsessed with the story. If you haven't heard those, it's a fascinating case. I think we have like four or five of them. If you haven't heard... If you just Google, you'll be like, no way. And it's yes way. It's a yes way moment. <laughs> and in a series of yes way moments, she apparently last January booked a one-way ticket to Mexico, Mm -hmm. and prosecutors, I don't know how they found this out, they're like, I think it's mighty interesting that you did not book a return trip. I think, like, they were probably monitoring, I mean, they're monitoring her, because she's, she has to turn herself in in April. They have to be. So, and, and part of your... For jail. For 11 years of jail. To, straight to jail. Straight to jail. So you have to like say you have to turn over your passports right 
Right. So, bitch, where are you going? So she didn't even have access to her passport. So I'm like, where did you think? How did you think? Well, she can go out. Oh, she can? I think so. But she, she can get back. into Mexico, no passport? I, 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 I don't know. I think so. What, no. She was maybe trying to. Maybe she was trying to. Maybe she was trying to with a different passport. Right, 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 right. The prosecutors contact her lawyers and they're like, What? <laughs> fascinating that she booked a one-way trip. Uh-huh. Like, bitch, you have to book both ways. And you can't leave the country right now, A of all. Yeah. B of all, book a, book a flight back, right? Because it looks like you're just trying to run. And her lawyers are like, it was just a friend's wedding in Mexico. It was all a big misunderstanding. They didn't know how long they were going to go for. But, like... You were just sentenced to 11 years in prison. You can't just leave the country. Well, I think it speaks to her, like, inability to take ownership of and responsibility, right? She's like, well, yeah, I'm not in jail yet, so... For sure. I want to go to Mexico. And it's like, no. <laughs> her lawyers are arguing that she should go ahead and start her jail time now in her mansion. Mm-hmm. And I saw in a couple of different articles that the monthly upkeep on this mansion is $13,000 a month. So prosecutors are like, that's not jail. Yeah, she'll she'll soon realize how different that is to jail. <laughs> Being in your house is not jail. Mm-hmm. I love my house. You know that, surely. Yeah, I would rather be in my house. If my house does not have $13,000 of upkeep a month, then I would rather the be same. She probably has a private <laughs> chef. Are you joking? No. And staff? There's no. Absolutely not. You can't start it there. And you can't start it in Mexico. You you can't. And I thought it was, in, well, I did see um, some of her lawyer's kind of defenses that they do this all the time. They like book one ways. Yeah. And Michelle, my wife, was like, that is a good defense. Like rich people are like, well. Well, who cares? I'll book it last minute. Yeah. I don't know when I'm going to come back. Yeah. So apparently her partner went on the Mexico trip And then he came back from a different continent that was not North America. And so prosecutors are like, she was supposed to go with you and just like continent hop while she's about to go to jail for 11 years. You can't do that. So weird. It's such a weird situation. It is a good defense. I agree with you that they're like, well, you don't understand because rich people do do it this way. Like you're not rich. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, rich people do this. Sorry, prosecutors. Not, you're not rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was so. I feel like she wants to go out with a bang. Oh, <laughs> for sure. Like, you know, I'm like, you really will try anything, bitch. You will try anything. <laughs> when the article said that she was trying to flee the country. You know, it's like, was she really trying to flee the country? Well, she was trying to flee. She was definitely trying to leave the country, for sure. Yeah, she was trying to go to some... She was trying to go to the beach. I highly doubt that she had, like, no concept that she couldn't do that. I think that she probably was sitting in her mansion, and she was like, 11 years is a long time. Yeah, one last all-inclusive trip to Mexico. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, I get it. I would want to do the same thing, but you can't. You can't. You sure? <laughs> Sweetie, no. So stop it. Uh, Yeah, so a bunch of people tagged us in that and were like, you need to address this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, I'm just, wait, has Sonny been sentenced yet? We we missed it. He was sentenced to 13 years. Oh, damn. <laughs> also, for a white collar crime, and you have to assume they'll be like good in jail, they'll probably serve, what, five years? Seven, maybe? I don't know. Five years is a long fucking time. It's a long time, still. 
Okay, I'm just ready for this all to be wrapped up in a neat bow. Because I think, like, Elizabeth Holmes has spurred accountability in, in this space. Like, we're seeing more and more people held accountable for lying to <laughs> investors and stuff. Like, that's coming out, so... For sure. Um, Do you want to get into this? Yeah, this is really crazy. This is a good... A topic from Sydney, so I'm excited. Yeah. It's a brain it's a brain topic. It's a brain topic. It's really weird and rare, and I love a rare condition. And also, it's been a while since we've done like a condition yep. episode. Uh we get really into I, I get really into, I know Jess does too, the true crimey murder. Uh, yeah. And I like the history. I like to Yeah, we love a history. Marie from last time. Like I love doing that kind of stuff. But when you get into this, I'm like, what? <laughs> it's so crazy. Every now and then I like to sprinkle in a, a yeah. weird condition that you've probably never heard of. So yeah. today we're going to sling some facts at you about a condition called prognopagnosia, which is commonly known as facial blindness. Before we get into this, are you personally good at remembering faces? I'm good at remembering faces, but I will not remember your name. <laughs> no, Same. I feel like when somebody remembers your name, it is such a, it's such a flex and it makes them seem like such a nice person. And I will say I went on a bachelorette party trip and it happened to me for the first time where I stuck my hand out to like, hi, nice to meet you. And the girl was like, we've met at least twice. And I just did not remember her face. And it was like the worst feeling. Yikes. Yeah. I'm pretty, I think it's from teaching. Yeah. But I will never remember your name. No. (laughs) There are people though who, and I'm not for sure one of these, that they call um, super recognizers. Super recognizers. Okay. The opposite of facial blindness. (laughs) Yes. The opposite. So facial blindness exists on a spectrum. And on one end is facial blindness, and on the complete opposite end of the spectrum is super recognizers. Yeah. And it's this crazy condition where they remember every face they've ever seen, basically. Like, they could pass someone in a grocery store and see them five years later after they've gained weight and cut their hair, and they still remember that person. Mm, No, that's not me. It's like a superpower, and that is not mine. Mm -mm. Only a handful of super recognizers have been discovered so far who say they recognize almost every face they have ever seen. A team of scientists at Harvard has begun scanning the brains of super-recognizers, too, to see if they might yield any clues. The science of facial recognition is in its infancy. Facial blindness, or prognopagnosia, from the Greek word uh, prosopon, which means face, and agnosia means lack of knowledge, It's essentially a neurological or cognitive disorder where the perception of faces is impaired. And it's not the same thing as what I did to that girl at that bachelorette party where it's like, oh, we've met before. I just can't place where I know you from (laughs) because that's just you're just forgetful or you're kind of a dick. This is literally they cannot sometimes in a certain severity of the condition recognize that a face is a face. Yeah. Like, they can see the features, eyes, nose, mouth, but they can't... It doesn't click that that's Their a mind face. doesn't put together that that's a human face. Yeah. Which is crazy. It is really wild. As we get into it, it'll make sense, but I feel like when you just hear it, you're like, this... It doesn't make sense that that can happen. Mm-hmm. So, 
Most people with the condition can see individual features, hair color, eye color. They can describe the shape of your nose. They can say whether you have like high cheekbones, but they can't retain a memory of how those objects connect with someone they know. So they can see a face for the 50th time, the 100th time, their mom's face, their spouse's face, and it looks to them like a stranger's face. It looks like the first time they've ever seen that person. But they know that there are, like, eyes, nose. Yes. And then in some cases, yeah. so I guess the most severe cases, they can't perceive faces at all. Mm-hmm. The fa- Have you ever seen Westworld? Mm. I don't think so. Okay, there's a thing in Westworld where the people are programmed to not see anything from the future, and they kind of go blank, and they're like, it doesn't look like anything to me. That's what people with, like, the severest form of prognopagnosia I see. They can't physically perceive that they're looking at a human face. Like, you can take a face out of context without the hair, not on a human body, and they might literally think it's a different object, like a rock. Mm-hmm. Which is so confusing to me, right? I don't know what that feels like. That's crazy. It's hard to imagine what it would feel like. Yeah. And there's, I'll tell you a little story about this. It, originally, face blindness was described by a German neurologist or Bodama in the 1940s, and he used the term prosopagnosia. And one of the patients he described who had become face-blind after a head injury um, was unable to recognize the nurses or even his wife if she dressed as a nurse, with one exception, one nurse he always recognized. And when Bodama said, how, why, he said, because she has beautiful white teeth. (laughs) So this sounds really wild to be like, that's a face or a rock. Who knows? Not me. Yeah. It's also extremely rare that exists in a few different forms. So one is congenital or developmental disorder. Mm -hmm. And we found a recent article published in the Journal of Neuropsychology that said that the prevalence rate for this form is about... 2.5%. 2.5%. Which sounds kind of high. It's not, is it 2.5% of the people who have facial blindness? I don't remember after reading the article if it was 2.5% of the general population. That's what I think it was. Okay. They, the survey they did was in the UK and they estimated that it was like 55 million people or something. That's a lot. And I was like, that's a high number of people who can't recognize faces to some degree yeah it's like all the spectrum talk that you did before yeah it's not all extreme this specific form of facial blindness is lifelong and starts manifesting in early childhood and it can have a pretty severe impact on people's lives obviously like they live with it essentially nothing traumatic happened to give it to them they've just had it yeah and that's how they live that's how they grew up yeah and i feel like those people might be better at Some of the coping skills that we'll talk about later that people can use to kind of get around facial blindness, the people who have it developmentally might be better at that. But in terms of making your life hard, I mean, for one, it would make watching movies or TV basically impossible. That's a good point. (laughs) Like the first, did you, you guys watch Game of Thrones, right? I did, yeah. Okay, so everybody on Game of Thrones is like a gruff middle-aged white dude. And the first time I watched maybe like season one, The whole time I was like, wait, which guy is that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it would feel like that all the time, but for everyone you see. Yep. And I feel like it's easy to forget how much we rely on facial recognition in our daily lives because it's so automatic for us. Yep. And reading about this condition made me really aware of how hard it would make things for you. So 
Yeah, that's a really good point. It's hard. In some cases, people with this condition can't even recognize facial expressions. They can't tell a person's age or gender. Yeah. They can't follow someone's gaze. Like, I get the feeling that it can make social situations really difficult for people who deal with this. Yeah. Um, and maybe it is like perceived as something else for them, but they're just really trying to like figure the situation out for sure. Not being able to recognize friends, family, coworkers, et cetera. Oh my God, your boss. Imagine. Oh no. Yeah. No, it would probably make life extremely difficult. And especially if you were living with it undiagnosed. Mm hmm. Because people would just think you're rude. Yeah, people think you're rude or super forgetful or maybe there's misdiagnosis with like ADD or something because you're like... Or autism maybe. Yep, yep, exactly. I feel like it could be misdiagnosed as a lot of things. And, And the intersection of that too, if you like have this and something else... Oh, yeah, for sure. So there's the hereditary form that starts to manifest during early childhood. And then there's an acquired version, which may occur after brain damage from something like stroke or a brain injury or like like a TBI, like Sydney studied for her PhD because she's a doctor. (laughs) You love to bring it up. (laughs) Works it into every episode. (laughs) Every conversation, really, that you have, I feel. I'm like, "Um, hello, this is the doctor. Jess is my number one supporter. (laughs) Don't don't tell Eric. (laughs) He knows. (laughs) Yeah, no, he definitely knows. Uh, Beep, boop, bop. So the acquired forms have actually given science a lot to work with in terms of understanding how facial recognition works in a healthy brain. No one knows what causes lifelong face blindness. It was discovered so recently, scientists are just beginning to unravel its secrets. And some of the clues are coming from people who once had normal face recognition, but lost it after suffering damage to part of the brain. And in an interesting twist, those people are also offering insight into the way the rest of us recognize faces. So I want to jump for a second into the science of how facial recognition normally works yeah. for just a second. This will be helpful. I think it'll <laughs> I think it'll clear up a lot. Yeah. So humans have a visual system which includes the retina and photoreceptors in your eyes. From those uh, come an optic nerve, then an optic tract that goes through your brain. And then the visual cortex is located in the very back of your brain, like where a ponytail would sit. That's the uh, visual cortex. So visual information comes in. The visual cortex helps your brain to basically build a representation. That means you get to perceive whatever you're looking at. Okay. What's really interesting is with people who have prognopagnosia, all of those functions are completely normal. Oh. Like, they did all of these uh, MRI and fMRI scans, and all of those pieces of these people's brains are functionally normal. They can perceive everything else. They know what a jacket is, what a coffee cup is, whatever. It's literally just faces. And so... That got this MIT neuroscientist named Nancy Canwisher really interested in how that process of facial recognition works. And the problem for these people lies in an area of the brain called the fusiform face area, uh, part of the fusiform gyrus, which was named by uh, this neuroscientist Nancy Canwisher in 1997. And I'm going to insert a clip here to let her describe how she discovered this special piece of the human visual system. Because she did an interview with 60 Minutes. And I think that's cool. this is like a fantastic piece of, you know, just let her talk about it. Yeah. 
It turns out that neuroscientists have been trying to figure out how it is that our brains recognize faces for decades. Face recognition is a very difficult problem because all faces are basically the same. MIT neuroscientist Nancy Canwisher. There are these two roundish things here. There's this thing there. There's this thing there. They're all the same. And so discriminating one face from another is a very computationally difficult thing because it's those subtle differences in the same basic structure that distinguish one thing from another. If you look at a face upside down, you're very bad at recognizing it. If you look at a word or an object or a scene, you can recognize it fine upside down. So what did that so, tell you? It tells you that there's something very special about face recognition. It works in a very different way from recognition of everything else. And that got Canwisher wondering if there might be a part of the brain responsible just for seeing faces. She started putting people with normal face recognition into MRI scanners and watching what happens in their brains as they looked at different images. It's because we want to know not just what parts of the brain are active when you see faces, but what parts are more active when you see faces than when you see objects. Canwisher discovered that there was indeed a place in the brain that becomes very active when we look at faces. And in every subject, boom, there was this nice big response there. So could that be what's missing in people with lifelong face blindness? Canwisher put him in the scanner to find out. I really did not expect to see a fusiform face area. So, so you thought there'd be nothing there? Like as if yeah. instead of having a bullet go through it, he was just born without it? That's right. Okay. That's right. And he looked at the data, and his face area was beautiful. It's textbook. So what does that say to you? <laughs> it tells us that the problem is not that this thing doesn't exist. There it is. But see, that's the fun of science. It's fun to be told you're just completely and totally wrong. Because now you have to go back and, you know, think anew. So Nancy scanned the brains of all these people with congenital facial blindness and found that to her surprise, they all had normal looking fusiform face areas. Right. Which you, she originally thought maybe they were missing that area entirely because that's the only thing that they can't recognize. But some of the people they scanned who had acquired facial blindness, who had suffered like an injury or a tumor in this special part of their brains, when they, when they studied those people, it gave them a huge clue into how this part of the brain contributes to normal facial recognition processing. And another interesting tidbit here is that the MRI scans of people with the acquired prognopagnosia usually had lesions in the right hemisphere. And then FM fMRI scans, functional MRI scans, showed that the left hemisphere was functioning normally. Yeah. So it's like damage to the right side of this specific area or a tumor in that area is like the only way you can get this, which is probably why it's so rare. I think it's so interesting that we know where things come from in the brain. <laughs> side note. Science is cool. Hashtag thanks, science. <laughs> Literally, I'm like, somebody figured out where facial recognition happened in the brain yeah and it's totally a result how many brains do you have to look at so many so, so many, many brains. and the hereditary version they still don't really understand why it doesn't work mm. because the acquired version they're like oh there's a tumor there was a lesion because they had a brain it injury it, it makes sense. sense something happened yeah the genetic version they're like Fusiform face area is completely normal. All of the visual system is completely normal. They don't know how it happens. Still. That's crazy. Yeah, she's still doing research on it. It's super cool. Good. Shout out to her. Shout out, Nancy.
So also the acquired facial blindness, I'm not going to try and say that word because that would be a joke, is pretty <laughs> hard. It is hard. Uh, it's pretty, I had to practice. I had to listen to it because I can't read science words. Mm-hmm. So the acquired version is pretty easy for people to identify for themselves after an accident or with the development of something like a brain tumor because it usually happens in adults who have gone their whole lives with normal facial recognition abilities and then all of a sudden they're like, what (laughs) like yeah i don't know who that is or if that is somebody yeah there was one woman in that 60 minutes interview where she said that the first time she realized something was really wrong was after she had a tbi she went to the hospital and her friend came in wearing a white jacket Mm -hmm. and she thought that her friend was one of the doctors she was like oh hi dr you're one of the doctors, right? And she was like, we've been friends for 20 years. And she was like, something's happening. She's like, I can't, I, I yeah. can't recognize I you, you. Which would be yeah. so scary. Yeah. There's actually a website called faceblind.org, which we'll link in the show notes. But you can go to this website and take a test to see how good your facial recognition abilities are. Because if facial blindness is something that you start to notice in yourself, you need to see a neurologist ASAP. Yeah. Something to, is really to wrong. To have that diagnosis. Yeah. Um, On that note, there's a few different ways that you can be formally diagnosed. So scientists and doctors have developed these neuropsychological assessments that are specifically used to diagnose facial blindness Mm -hmm. because this is crazy. It is. (laughs) And it's really new. Yeah. Yeah. These these tests. Yeah. Yeah. One basically uses famous people's faces like the current president or movie stars that most people would recognize. They would. I would fail that because I don't know anyone's <laughs> face that is. I'd be like, that one's Obama. <laughs> yeah, I could do, but yeah. anyone else cannot. Terrible. The other is the Benton Facial Recognition Test, the BFRT. The person being tested is given a target face, mm-hmm. not like a target, but like mm-hmm. this is the target face. Yeah. Remember this. And then six other faces. And then they're told to pick the face out of the six that matches the target face. The images are cropped and they eliminate hair and clothing, so Mm -hmm. it's literally just the face. Right. One study, however, found that people with facial blindness were somehow passing this test. Mm -hmm. So then the Cambridge face memory test was developed to better diagnose people with this condition. And about 75% of patients who self-reported facial blindness were diagnosed with this test versus only 25% diagnosed using the previous test. So this test is much better than the previous tests of just, like, match the face. Yeah, and this these tests are coming out within the last, like, 20, 10 to 20 years. Yes. So I can't imagine how hard it would have been to live with this condition way, way, way long ago when nobody even had any concept of what it might be. It would be really yeah. stressful. I actually wonder if it was easier back in the days that which I would have never wanted to be born because people had, like, one dress. Oh, they and never like change their clothes. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Because if you hear people talk about it with facial blindness, they say, like, I'm good with all my friends unless they cut their hair. Yeah. And then I'll never know who you are again. And, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So one dress might have been a real advantage. One, a one dress wonder could have been yeah. <laughs> the best part. <laughs> the best part of living back then, for sure. Oh, yeah. Nothing else is good. No. Nothing else. <laughs> there are several different subtypes of prognopagnosia. And one of... I've, I'm just going to say facial blindness because I, now I feel like I'm flexing by saying the clinical term. <laughs> you can say it. People know I can't read. It's okay. <laughs> I don't care. 
<laughs> so Jess talked about one of them being developmental. If you have a developmental case, you almost definitely already know that you have it. I saw in an interview one little boy whose mom describes him being at a party and he literally walks right past her because he doesn't recognize yeah. that it's his mom. So that would be pretty quickly diagnosed, right? Yeah. Something's up. Something's up. If you walk right past your mom and don't even, like, not even a flicker of recognition would be crazy. Yeah. For a long time, no one really knew whether it was possible that facial blindness was hereditary. And then in 2005, there was a study that was led by Ingo Kennerknecht. That looks right. Honestly. I should have practiced that. You could have said Sorry, Ingo. anything that started with a K, and I would have been like, yep. <laughs> Ingo K. Yep. Used epidemiological data collected from 689 randomly selected students who took a facial recognition test. From this group, they identified 14 people who had some degree of facial blindness. And then they interviewed those 14 people's family members. And in all 14 of those cases, at least one other affected family member was found. So they basically created pedigrees for each family and those pedigrees proved that genetically you can inherit facial blindness. They just don't know where it where it sits or why. Yeah, they don't know what gene causes it or how you inherit it, but it does appear to be an autosomal dominant gene. So if one of your parents has it, there's a 50% likelihood that the children will have it. So that's the developmental form. Yeah. And the two acquired forms are... Aperceptive, yep. Yeah. People with this disorder literally can't make any sense of faces and are unable to recognize facial emotion. So if you show them two faces that have similar features, same eye color, hair hair color, etc., they literally cannot tell these two people, like, they can't say they're different. Yeah. However, they may be able to recognize people based on non-facial clues, like their clothing, hairstyle, skin color, or even their voice. Mm-hmm. And then the other type is associative, and people with this form may be able to tell if photos of people's faces are the same or different. Like, if there's two photos and you hold them up next to each other, they can tell that the photos are of two different people. But if one of the pictures you're showing them has their mom, they can't be like, those are two different because that's my mom. Right. Like, they can't do that. Exactly. They have somehow lost the ability to pair that face with the information about the person, though they do have information about the person in their memories. Exactly. Just not connected to that face. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I think these two different types together have really helped scientists understand exactly how much of the brain is required to like recognize a face or do something called holistic processing. Because first, your brain has to cognitively recognize the pattern that makes up a face, right? Eyes, nose, mouth. Yep. Which is what people with the first kind, aperceptive facial blindness, cannot do. They see the pattern, but they're like, that doesn't look like anything. That's a slide at a point. Right. A no uh, rock. Could be a rock. <laughs> could be a turtle. A couldn't tell you. Mm, I don't know. Then your brain has to collect the information about the face. Your brain like flips through a database of information to match that face to a particular name. So like when your face pops up on my Zoom call, I see it and instantly my brain goes, that's Jess. Here's everything we know about Jess. Yeah. You know what I mean? It would be my worst nightmare if I hopped on a Zoom call and you're like, who the fuck are you? Oh, it would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I would freak out. I'd <laughs> be like, what? I would immediately call a neurologist. I'd be like, look, something happened. I have uh, something. Please and you me. should. Yeah. 
Um, and that's what people with the associative facial blindness can't do. They see a face, they recognize it's a face, they just can't make the connection of in the database, they can't, their brain scrolls through and it's like, I got nothing on this person. Yeah. <laughs> well, coming up, come up blank here. Yeah, so somehow that connection is missing. That also means that at least three different parts of the brain have to work together to see the face, recognize it, and identify a person's identity after seeing their face, which is amazing. And damn, I I love the brain. You're a nerd. <laughs> You're a brain I, nerd. I am a nerd. I get so excited about stuff like this. No, I think it is. Whenever you brought up the topic, I was like, facial blindness. <laughs> like, what is this? And then I had to really think about yeah. what people have to do in order to recognize someone and to your point, I'm like, yeah, that's crazy that all of that happens in like a split second. Yeah. I mean, it happens so quickly in in a normally functioning brain. It happens in like microseconds. Yeah. And the more you see a person, obviously, the more readily available that data is. Right. Which is crazy because these people can just see a person every day. I mean, p- these people get married. They have parents. They have loved ones, you know. Children. Children. And your brain just cannot make that connection. Yep. In any social situation, are you always a little anxious? I'm more than a little anxious, and I, and I, I tend to, uh, to keep my mouth closed before I make some awful blunder. Of course, uh, another tactic, strategy, is to smile at everybody. The other thing is that prognopagnosia belongs to an entire category of neurological disorders called agnosias, which are broadly the inability to process some type of sensory information. So those can be visual, like facial blindness, auditory, like you can't, you can hear a word and not be able to understand it, or tactile. And there are some really weird conditions, I shouldn't say weird, very interesting conditions on this list of agnosias. So... One of them is called a kinetopsia, where people are unable to process motion. So they see a car moving down the street as like a series of still images. That's terrifying. Where it's like the car is parked here, the car is parked here, the car is parked here, but they can't process that the car is moving. That is terrifying. That's really weird, right? That's scary. Especially if something's coming at you, it would be... Yeah. It'd be like, imagine. Like, ah, it's closer. A, a tiger. It's closer. A tiger. Right. A tiger. A tiger's eating you. Like, what? A tiger's in your face. Yeah. Right. But they can't process motion, and that's scary. Yeah. There's another super interesting one called somatosensory agnosia, where people can't recognize objects by touch. The only time I can think of this is, like, in a haunted house where they make you stick your hand in a bowl of jello, and they're like, it's brains. Ew. Have you ever done those? No. Okay. I've only been in one haunted house in my life, and I did not enjoy it, and I will not go back. I love a haunted house. I love to be titillated. No. (laughs) And if they're like, stick your hand in here, no. I'm not doing that. You can't make it. I'm not doing that. Absolutely not. I'm not doing it. I'm just like, okay, I'll stick my hand in there. (laughs) You wouldn't if you were with me, because I'd be like, none of my party is participating in this nonsense. She's not sticking her hand in there. She's not doing it. I'm the fun So these people would do that and then they'd be like I I just can't feel it like I I literally have no idea what that is and maybe that's not a good example because like what are the odds that that happens so let's say a coffee cup if you blindfold them and ask them to like pick a coffee cup out of their cabinet 
which they maybe use like every day, they would be like, I have no idea what I'm touching. That's interesting. Like they couldn't differentiate between a plate and a coffee cup. Hmm. Isn't that weird? Through touch. Through but touch. They could through... Okay, got Visually, it. they could see it and understand what it was, but through touch, they're not able to. Got it. And then the last one I want to talk about is a super specific form called finger agnosia, mm-hmm. which can be a symptom of something called Gerstmann syndrome. And people with this condition are unable to recognize that these things on the end of your hand are fingers. All right. Like they see their own fingers and it looks like nothing to them. They're like, I don't know what that is. They cannot identify it. That's so weird. If you show them a picture of a finger, they're like, I've never seen that before. Honestly, like, what? Like, why is that happening? That's not, feels so interesting. It's like unfair. I think they don't know a lot about that one because it's super rare. I mean, some of these are like a handful of cases that have ever been documented. But still... That's hard to live like that. It would be really hard. And it's hard to even imagine what not recognizing a finger would be like for people. Yes. So I hope we're being really sensitive about how we talk about this. It's just a really fascinating look into how the brain works. Like we said, these conditions are pretty rare. Like some of them, finger agnosia, for instance, is like a handful of cases. If we have any listeners with any kind of agnosia, I would be super interested to hear from you guys about your experiences and what it's like. Um, I also just read this really good thriller book, if you like a thriller, called Rock, Paper, Scissors. And the main character has prognopagnosia. Really? And it's kind of a cool plot device because, yeah, I won't, I won't spoil anything, but it's it's interesting to hear... About him, like, living with his wife and being like, yeah, I literally don't know what she looks like. Interesting. Right? Uh, absolutely. And if you want to write in, we'll definitely read your email on the show if you give us permission. Because a firsthand account of what that this is like would be, one, really fascinating. And two, super helpful mm-hmm. for listeners who have no experience with this condition and who, like us, are trying to figure out what that would mean like I think as someone it's kind of in my mind as someone who can see colors like imagining being colorblind Mm -hmm. like imagining not having that thing is really hard I think if we could get a first-hand account that would be no totally I know some people say that like just from reading about this lots of people cope by recognizing other non-facial features Mm -hmm. we talked about this hair color body shape or size mannerisms the sound of someone's voice um people also say that conversation skills and being super friendly becomes really important because you need to get information out of someone very quickly about how you know them yeah so you can place them yeah yeah but i'm sure it can affect you socially and in terms of everyday functioning Some people say they actually study the faces of their friends and loved ones to try and find special ways of recognizing the people that they really care about. Um, And that's, unfortunately, that's basically it in terms of treatment. Uh, Some clinicians believe that by studying facial, facial expressions and different faces, people with prognopagnosia can improve their facial processing abilities, which is cool. But there's really no other treatment outside of that. Some people who experience this after an injury or stroke end up recovering their abilities almost entirely. So the research is still being done. 
And if you have some degree of facial blindness, the research teams are also always looking for participants because, like we said, it's pretty rare. So it's hard to find people who are interested in in you know, participating in treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're one of those people and you're interested in contributing to science, we'll link some of these groups that you can uh, link up with to learn more about kind of the treatment options that are available. And there's support groups and there's therapists. It's really, it's come a long way in the last maybe 10 or 20 years, um, but it's still got a long way to go, obviously. So we kind of wanted to get the word out about this condition because lots of people don't even realize they have it. Yeah. And speaking of that, there are actually several, like, famous-ish people mm-hmm. who have come out and said they're either diagnosed or they're self-diagnosed with facial blindness, including possibly Brad Pitt, yeah. which is random. So, obviously, we know he's a famous actor. He's played in... So many. What, I don't even want to know how many movies, but, like, Fight Club, Moneyball, World War Z, etc. He has, like, four Golden Globe nominations and two Academy Award nominations. Mm-hmm. While it's not for sure that he has been diagnosed or not, he said he has such a hard time with faces, he believes he has this. Yeah. He is quoted as saying, so many people hate me because they think I'm disrespecting them. I'm going to go get tested. That's why I stay at home. You meet so many damn people and then you meet them again. And he thinks he has facial blindness because he cannot recognize people like ever. I read about him in an interview and his experience, and it definitely sounds like classic facial blindness. Yeah. Or, you know, it's a spectrum. So it's a spectrum, but it definitely sounds like he's got it. Yeah. Brad Pitt may have one of the most recognizable faces in the world, but it turns out he is unable to recognize other faces. So in his recent GQ cover story, he says that he struggles with face blindness. Now, the actor previously described the disorder in a 2013 interview with Esquire magazine, explaining, So many people hate me because they think I'm disrespecting them. Every now and then, someone will give me context, and I'll say, Thank you for helping me, but I piss more people off. You get this thing like, you're being egotistical. Um, oh, and then Jane Good- Goodall, mm-hmm. um, hello, chimpanzee queen, <laughs> Yeah, is an English anthropologist and primatologist mm-hmm. who is known for living among chimpanzees in Tanzania, has apparently been diagnosed with facial blindness. I didn't realize that she was diagnosed, but that's that's so fascinating. Yeah. And maybe, you know. And she had a really long and, and uh, solid scientific career. Yeah, period. Right. Yeah, Oliver Sacks is a British neurologist, author, and historian of science. The New York Times called Sacks the poet laureate of medicine. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is something. Yeah. And he has written on patients with unusual diseases, including a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and another called Awakenings. Mm-hmm. He said his facial blindness was moderate and went on to say, My attention goes to the rest of you, your shirts, your voice, your pants. Oliver Sacks may be a world-famous neurologist, but there's one simple thing, something important, something most of us take for granted, that he can barely do at all. That's to recognize a face. Sometimes, even his own face. Sometimes I fail to recognize myself. Even yourself. Yes, I've occasionally started apologizing to a, a clumsy, bearded man, only to realize that this is a mirror. And this is my reflection. I, I can see your expressions and, uh, and, and your attention and where your eyes look, but um, I see all the features, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite add up to a, a unique image. 
for me. Right. And he's a neurologist, and he didn't know for a really long time that he had it. Yeah. Which is even more fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think really speaks to the rarity of this condition. Like, a literal neurologist who somebody called the Poet Laureate of Medicine didn't know that he had it. So if you haven't been diagnosed, I, I wouldn't trip about it. It's not your fault. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and the last one I want to mention is Chuck Close. He's an American artist, painter, and photographer who's known for his inventive techniques used to paint the human face. Mm-hmm. In kindergarten, he discovered he could not recognize faces. Quote, even by the end of the year, I didn't recognize anyone in my class. Have you ever seen any of his uh, work? So I know the name, but I haven't. He does no. these really huge uh, pieces of art of of close-ups of faces, but he does them sometimes like made up out of lots of tiny little pictures. Oh, that's cool. Oh, wait, then yes. It, yeah. So he does some really cool work. And I think it, to me, it makes it even more interesting to know that he has prognopagnosia and he's doing these really cool works of art that are so focused on the human face. So. Maybe that's why. Yeah. That's what Chuck Close told us he does. You have to be really charming. <laughs> if you are going to insult them by not remembering them, you just have to be extremely charming so that people don't hold this stuff against you. Lots of really interesting people have it. Yeah. Well, that's what we know about that. Yeah, thanks, Sydney, for recommending this topic. Super cool. Yeah, I uh, I, I really liked this. I, I was excited to cover it because I think it's such an interesting topic, and we hope you guys learned something. If you have a recommendation of something we should cover, specifically a condition, because mm-hmm. those are something we want to sprinkle more of, please send us a DM on our Instagram, at malpracticepodcast, or an email, malpracticepodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that email address if you are someone who has prognopagnosia and you want to talk to us about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't want us to read it on the air, we won't. But otherwise, I think it would be a really cool yeah. um, experience for our listeners to hear what your life is like. And don't forget to leave us a review wherever you like to listen to podcasts. It really helps. And we love to hear your feedback. And don't forget, <laughs> malpractice, malpractice makes, makes perfect. perfect. Bye-bye.